Alrighty. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Have you all had your Geritol? <laughs> you've got just about everything when you've got your help. That's what he used to say. I didn't think that didn't when I used to see that a long time ago. I didn't know what he meant. <laughs> um, well, hallelujah. As John says, we don't plan anything, but we trust God to... Um, one reason we don't do that, um, other than trusting God, is that um, uh, we have such diverse groups of folks, and people are from different backgrounds and different understandings. And uh, we, I used to go travel back in the 80s teaching a... More or less the same thing I'm saying now, but from a, maybe a different standpoint. But I carried a whiteboard and drew uh, charts and drawings and diagrams, and um, it was kind of teaching this in a mechanical kind of way. And um, <clears throat> I had to go through a, a time of. Um, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, getting fixed, you might call it. God fixes His people in His own special way. And um, His school is unique for each of us. Um, we all go through a school of faith that we might live a life of faith. And um, there is a schooling time. And then there's a time when you move into your life's chosen profession or calling uh, both in our um, I don't like the term secular and spiritual because there really is no such thing but uh, you know we all or most of us do something to make a living and that may or may not be exactly what we do uh, in in regards to what we do in, in uh, God's work um, but I consider everything spiritual once you see it no such thing as a division between spirit, uh, spiritual and secular. Um, and if there is, then um, we haven't really moved into it yet. Because Paul said all of life is Christ. Paul said to live is Christ. And that's what I meant earlier when I said um, I live taken over. Um, and uh, so we trust God that we don't, we don't know some of you or haven't met some of you uh, uh, for some, for me anyway, the first time this evening, and some yesterday for the first time. But we trust God meets each and every person by His Spirit, in His own inner self, and that the Spirit ministers to each of us individually according to His unique way for each of us. And so, what we really pray and believe and know, because we've lived it and seen it, is that. Uh, God would, each of us would hear from God in His own unique way what God says through our words and through the words of each of us that are here. Uh, because uh, what we're sharing is common to all of us. Um, I, for the convenience of the fact that I got this recorder, we all sat together. But it kind of it kind of gives a us against you sort of sort of uh, deal here, and and I never have liked that. Um, well, I won't say never have. In my early Christian experience, I, I, I wanted to carry a lectern wherever I went um, because I, I, I really wanted to, to chat it up and I wanted to be the guy up front that people looked to and, um, and, um, and, and, and saw up there preaching and thought what a, what a spiritual guy he is. And the first time I got an opportunity to actually preach I had a big outline, and I thought I can go an hour on this. In five minutes, I was done. And <laughs> and uh, I've uh, uh, John mentioned a, a secret that I had, and I I really wish he hadn't revealed that that I had been ordained. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never. Uh, 
It's neither here nor there. It doesn't mean anything. I've never been a pastor. I've never been a, a, a in that kind of um, ministry. But occasionally I've had I've been called to do those pastoral kind of things, and I also was called to do a funeral one time. Uh, where I got to be the preacher who said, well, I didn't know, dear so-and-so. But, uh, and uh, I went to the pastor of the church I was in at the time, and he gave me his sermon outline. And the same thing. I thought, oh, I go 30 minutes on this. Five minutes, I was done. It was the worst funeral ever. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we... Even in our flubs and even in our stumblings and um, and uh, that that seem comedic now, but not necessarily when they happen, um, we see God working by us, and this is common to all of us, because um, God has called all of us to to be expressors of Him. That's what life is all about. It's not about religion, and by religion I mean. A set of principles or a set of rules and regulations or a set of rituals and procedures um, that uh, you have to do these certain things. Uh, uh, kneel so many times, raise your hands so far, yell so loud, and uh, that's going to cause God to do something. Jesus said, um, we're not like the heathen who think they're going to be heard for their much speaking. Um, a lady came up to Jesus. Um, uh, you all know the story of the woman at the well. Uh, she said, you know, uh, she said, which, which mountain do we worship on? She was a Samaritan who were, who were um, uh, enemies of the, of the Jews at the, in, that, in the time of Jesus uh, because they sort of were a, a mixed race and the Jews looked down on them and they had a kind of a mixed religion. And um, they had a mountain in Samaria where they said, this is the proper place to come and worship God. And of course, uh, the, uh, the Jews in Jesus' time, the, Herod, the temple of Herod was still there. And that, that, that was according to the law, of, uh, well not the law of Moses, but according to what had happened since the time of Solomon, that was the proper place to worship God. So you got two opposing proper places to worship God, which is right. And this is the question that the woman at the well posed to Jesus. And he says, well, neither. Neither is the right place because the things are changing. Because uh, in times past, God was seen in an outward way. God was seen as if you go to this temple up there on the hill, this building where he dwells, and you've got the priests doing their stuff there, and you've got the rituals, you've got the, you've got the altar of sacrifice, uh, you've, got the, you've got an altar, uh, a place for cleansing, which is ritual baptism, and then you have successive places inside the temple. There's, a, there's an outer court where uh, most people can go, and then as you get closer and closer inward into where God is only a few fewer and fewer people are able to go there, and then of course we all know that there's there, there's there's a holy place and um, uh, Levites who were general members of the tribe of Levi were were could minister in in all the outer places of the temple, but in the inner sanctions inner, inner sanctuary which consisted of two parts a holy place and a most holy place or the holy of holies only the sons of Aaron who were also Levites, but a particular family of the tribe of Levi, only they could go in there. And in the first place, the, the priesthood, the sons of Aaron, could minister and they could offer sacrifices of, of incense unto God in the outer holy place. And then finally there was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go there once a year and um, for one purpose and that was to atone for the sins of the people. And um, we've... Uh, the. By God's design, I don't think it's really... Uh, uh, I think God's always, as I said last night, He's always known how these things would go. But the Christian church kind of repatterned itself after that pattern and uh, kind of recreated that old uh, Judaism in, in the successive generations after Jesus. Which, and, the, and the pattern wasn't so much in the building and the robes and the rituals, but in the separateness. God is separate from us. God is behind the veil. 
Um, when I used to live in Monterey, California, uh, in my earliest days as a Christian, uh, uh, I used to go to, there was, um, even though I went to a Pentecostal church, I used to love to visit a Carmelite man- monastery that was down on, the, on Carmel Beach. Um, just across from Pebble Beach. And a uh, beautiful place to for God to give me the law and uh, kill me, which is what happened there, but it was a wonderful setting. Uh, my wilderness was a really pretty place. And... Um, but I used to love to go to that, that Carmelite monastery, but there were nuns who lived behind the wall. They were cloistered nuns. Those of you who know anything or, or former Catholics know what that means. It means they never leave there. And uh, they were silent. So they didn't speak except for when you could hear them in church. When you went to the church service, you could hear them behind the screen and you could hear them sing the psalms and, and the praises, which, which sounded wonderful. And um, I have no criticism uh, uh, for those ladies and for what they did. I, uh, if God has called them to that, I know He's blessed them. And that, that's not what I'm uh, here, to, here to talk about. What I am here to talk about is that the way has been made open When Jesus said, it's no longer about which mountain we worship on. It's no longer about your rules, regulations, and procedures. It's not about some building that we go to. It's not about worshiping on the mountain in Samaria as if that would be the right place to do it. Uh, It's not about worshiping in, in the temple in Jerusalem as if that would be the right place to go worship God. As if there's some way to worship God that's right for all people in some place that you have to go because God he says is spirit now what is spirit well we really don't know we really can't define it except God says I am and says he is spirit so the best we can say is that spirit is the person of God in its ultimate uh, origin and the ultimate source of all spirit is God himself I am that I am he said said to Moses so God is spirit and spirit is everywhere There's no place where spirit is not. He, as the spirit who is the source of all things, is everywhere there is a place to be somewhere. There he is. Um, And Jesus' point, one of his points there, is that no, it's not about God over there in a building. God off, apart, and separate from me. What's happening here, what is changing, is that it's about God, Christ, coming into us that we become this temple. Instead of going over there and finding God in a special place, we, we are the dwelling place of God. That's what the New Testament, the New Covenant is all about. Um, you know, in the Gospel of John, um, uh, Jesus, the first time He goes to Jerusalem, clears the temple of the money changers. The Synoptic Gospels is opposite. He does it the last time He goes to the temple. But in the Gospel of John, He does it the first time. And He says, uh, they ask Him about that. How, you know, Who gave you the authority to do these things? And He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the scripture says the temple he spoke of was the, the, his body. That he, you know, and it was, he was talking about his resurrection from the dead. But he was talking about more than that. Now for 2,000 years, we've had that down. The Christian church in all its forms, whether Catholic, Protestant, whatever, has had it down that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we just celebrated that last Sunday. But the second part, the most important part for us, really, about that is that He rose from the dead in us. So it's not about the separate Jesus over there that we're glad to see Him coming down the road and we all shout Hosanna. It's that He's risen from us, inside us, and that we now are the temple of the living God. And that He dwells right here in me. And, and so what does that mean? Well, that's, that's what we're here to kind of discuss a little bit. And hopefully you'll go home, if you haven't already seen something about this, hopefully go home with seeing something, a new understanding of who you are or who we all are in Christ. Because it's not that Jesus has come into us to be some separate God that, we're, that, that we bow down to as if He's like a, like a pagan God, like an idol. Like this somebody that we have to continually please, 
make make sure he's he he he's paying attention to us and and he knows that we've got needs and 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 we need him fulfilled and so we're we're always continually apart from him trying to get to him or trying to get his attention on us and maybe he'll kind of fill us with stuff of his of himself and then and then we'll figure something out and then we'll have a better life and everybody will be happy um is some <laughs> As my old pastor used to say, God is not a Coke machine. And I'll show you how long ago it was he said that, that you put in a quarter and get a Coke. Uh, you know, now it's five bucks. To, well, where, you know, it depends on if you're in an airport or something. But the, the, the whole thing has changed. But not that we don't go to an outer building to fellowship and be with people. Obviously, we have bodies and bodies have to have somewhere to go. So here we have a house and everybody comes to this house. But you know what? Everybody, every one of you walked in here with Jesus in you and brought him into this house. This house is not a special holy place in and of itself. But because we walk in here and the Spirit of God lives in each one of us, then that Spirit is filling this house. I'm not, I'm not asking the Holy Spirit to come down and meet us here. I figure He's here when we walk in because He walks in in us. See, this is, this is, this is something um, that, that changes in our consciousness as we begin to see what has happened inside us. He and I have become one person. That's what it means to be indwelt by God. You see, without getting into too great a detail, the the fall has 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 created in us a false consciousness that we're ourselves alone, and that that we have to have we have to have this separate God, and this separate God always is better. I mean, He's got the stuff, and we don't. Well, and and that's just like any pagan religion in the world. He's got the stuff and we don't and we got to do some things to get him to give us some of his stuff. As I always say, we've got to look around and find a virgin to toss into a volcano if we can find one. And that's getting tougher and tougher. So what are we going to do? We're not, but see, you realize that this a whole new reality has overtaken, has come about because of the New Testament, because of this new covenant. The old covenant was this. I do my part and God does His part. And when I do my part, and well, God does His part. He blesses me and fills me. And I, you know, I used to, and my part would be things, whatever it might be in your mind. For me, back in the old days and in my, um, Religious days, I thought it was Bible study and prayer and witnessing and tithing and all those things. Being nice, kind, loving, all that. And if I do all those things, then He does His part and kind of fills me and blesses me and makes everything prosper. Well, I was never quite able to do my part. I knew He could do His part. But I was never able to do mine. I could do some of it. And, but I, I eventually, uh, uh, it, it became nothing but condemnation because when you continually try and fail, what does it produce? It produces condemnation. It produces fear. It produces torment. It produces depression. It produces what kind of person am I? Well, that can be healthy. And God uses that. But that's what that produces. Um, when you see that He's come into us to both to will and to do of His good pleasure, that He and I have become one person through His activity, through His death and resurrection, that not only is it about Him up there, King Jesus, and we're welcoming King Jesus, and we're having Him come down, and we're all glad, and we're all happy, and we're all this big crowd. No, we are the King inside of us. Each one of us are walking around being Him in the world. That first scripture that John read earlier, about from Hebrews about uh, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him the joy that was set before him was that his life was going to be reproduced through his death and resurrection and then later on the outpouring of the spirit upon all flesh that it's a millions and millions and millions of Jesuses walking around only it's not Jesus anymore it's John and Boyd and everybody else in this room because you put your name there 
He and I are one person living. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. And as I said earlier, spirit is, is the self of God. And then also the scriptures say that we are spirits. He is the father of spirits. So in our inner selves, in the true uh, in, most inward part of who we are, which also corresponds, interestingly, to the, the pattern of the tabernacle and the temple, is that we are inside of ourselves spirit. We are compounded of that of which God is. God is spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. Where? That means inside ourselves. That's where He lives. That's where He comes to dwell. That's where the water of life comes out of. We think it's over there and He's going to pour it down out of heaven. Well, heaven, folks, is inside us. You know, the kingdom of heaven, he said, is within you. And it cometh not with observation. It doesn't come with low here, it's over there. In my early life, I would, every kind of new Christian move, every kind of new thing going on was over here. It was in that town and going on in that church over there. A mighty move over there. And y'all go over there and try to do that for a while. And oh, something new's happening over here. We run over there. And we we try to do that for a while. And that as I've been around in this life a good while, and I've seen all kinds of things come and go. And that at the time I thought they were permanent. I thought it was the, it was the deal. And but you know, a lot I've seen many things go by the wayside. But one thing has remained eternal and true, and that and that supersedes all others. And it's that source out of which all things come, which I've finally seen for myself and begin to communicate to others. And that's Christ in me, living in me, being me. And that's a big thing to say. How do, I, how, do I, how do I bridge that gap of separation that, you see, uh, uh, that, that's, that, is, that, that we all live with where I'm me and Christ is Christ and somehow I don't, see, I don't see how we can be the same person because when I focus and look at myself, I sure don't seem to be that. How could I be Christ living and expressing in me when I'm, I'm this guy that I am and I know, y'all don't know me, but I know me. He knows me and he probably wonders how could I be Christ, you know, uh, living in me. Um, I certainly, well, no, uh, but, uh, but you see, we, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, Paul says, a clay pot. And it doesn't necessarily look like it. You see, we have this human idea of what Jesus ought to be. The Pharisees and the scribes thought had an idea of what God ought to be. They had an idea of what the Messiah ought to be. And Jesus wasn't their idea of what the Messiah ought to be. And so when you think of you look at yourself and you think, well, how can this be Christ expressed in the world? Well, remember, that's what the scribes and Pharisees said of Jesus. How can this guy be the Christ? He's from Galilee. Nothing good ever. No, nothing good comes from Galilee. You know, the, and when Jesus went to his hometown, stood up in the synagogue and said, I'm the guy. They go, you, you're just like us. Nobody said... I always knew that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. You know, he was always praying. You know, he was holier than everybody. You know, he did occasionally all these kind of great things happened when he was around. I always knew. No, how can you say you're the Messiah? You're a man just like me. And so that's happened to us. He's come in and he says. My life is your life. I am in you and I'm one with you. John 17, go read it. He says we have the same oneness with the Father that He has with the Father. The same oneness. And what was that oneness? I and my Father are one. When you see me, you see the Father. So that the life I now live is His life living in me, expressing in me, operating me, motivating me, filling me with His desire, filling my mind with His thoughts, filling my heart with His love. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. It's He being Himself as us. He puts on us. When we put Him on us. when we Paul says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just a reverse way of saying He puts us on. Because see, really, He's walking around in the world in a, in a 
somebody said an earth sack or an earth suit that looks like you and me. Paul says, I said that scripture a minute ago, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel. And then he goes, the next verse he says, and an earthen vessel is, is, like I said, just a regular, normal clay pot. Just like a pot you put water in or you drink coffee from. It's just a regular thing in the world and it looks like every other clay pot there is in the world. But he says, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, to show that this comes out of an invisible source that no one can see and it only is seen by the eyes of the faith, eyes of faith through the hearing of the Spirit and and by the Spirit's revelation. We all know the story when Jesus said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Uh, Are? And, uh, um, you know, some say, well, you're a prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah. Lies are risen from the dead. Well, who do you say I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus says, the key thing for all of us, for all time. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, son of Jonah. But my Father which is in heaven... You see, no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You see, that's what's happened to us. We can say these things. We can see these things because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Because He he came into us to reveal Christ in us, through us, and as us. So that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's the whole secret. It's ground zero. It's the starting point for all things. That it's He, not me. But then it's me. See, that doesn't make sense to natural reasoning. It's not me, it's He, but it's me. Because He and I are now one. So when I say I, I don't always go, Christ and I, Christ and I are one, Christ and I are one, it's just me. And yet, this, this, this settling comes into us when we take this by faith that it's no longer I who live, but He lives in me. This settling comes into us where, we, where the Spirit speaks in us and confirms it in us. And that's when, that's when it talks about in Hebrews 11.1 1, where faith becomes substance. It becomes the Word of God in us. The living Word of God that wells up inside us that says, I am you. I am your, you know, I am your sight. I am your eyes. I am your hands. And you express me by means of my Spirit within you. How? We don't know. It's a mystery. That's why Paul said it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Not, it's not that it's a secret. You know, there's a big deal called the secret now. Well, there's no secret about this. This is open to all. And, and, and in, in that thing, it's about you doing stuff with your mind and things like that. Well, we, we cease to be. We've learned, to, we've learned that we died in Him. That's what it says in Romans 6. That's what Rome, uh, Galatians 2.20 says. And a, and a whole lot of other places. That in the crucifixion we died. We died. We were buried with Him in baptism. And then we, raised, we were raised again to newness of life. And the newness of life is that we're no longer the old self that we used to be. Now, of course, we're continually told that we are. And the way we're continually told that we are is that we're told to improve, to change, to be better, to do something, show it, prove it. And the old self uh, wants to do that. And so still, still thinking, even though we've been born again, still thinking we're just this old self that we always were, we, we go about trying to fix it up. Hippie story. <laughs> Carol asked me to do this. Um, the, uh, when I first was born again, I went nuts. Some of you have heard this story before. And um, uh, you can see I might have a tendency to do that. And um, one of the th- at, at the time um, that uh, I was in the the hippie life and I had the the required VW bus that that is uh, you know that all of us were issued once we once our hair grew lower than our ears and um, mine happened to be a 1959 VW bus um, and uh, with a 40 horsepower engine some previous owner had painted it uh, 
with house paint, I might add, beige with the the little thing on the, the I don't know what the stripe uh, across the middle was dark brown, and then had also. Um, if you can imagine Rover's house out back, uh, the, the standard doghouse like that, well, someone had constructed a, a, a doghouse looking thing, cut out the middle third of the roof, and stuck that up on top of the van. Well, I, I salivated for that when I saw it at Bill's Used Cars. Uh, Wayside Road in Rome, Georgia. And I, I, I made a deal with Bill and traded my 1960, well actually my wife's 1963 uh, Plymouth Valiant uh, and $450 uh, for, for that uh, 1959 VW bus. And this, would, this was in 1972. And um, it had been well used. And the, the doghouse was constructed out of very thick plywood so I don't really know how much the doghouse in and of itself weighed but I probably couldn't have picked it up it was very heavy and um, those of you who know those vehicles know they weren't power, very powerful in the first place and putting a big doghouse on top uh, just about brought it down to zero you know and um, well sometimes Oh gosh, uh, uh, pump the brake uh, to get it to stop. I would frequently have to get under it, and um, and and you had there was a way you put the car in first gear. The the, the starter would hang up, and I'd I'd have to get up under the car and push it somehow to get the flywheel to move to get the starter un unstopped. And this was on the way to California, and. Uh, and uh, so, so anyway, but I had that van, and like I said, I salivated when I saw it, and I made a deal with Bill to buy it and got it, and um, then, um, uh, well, then we got saved not long after that. And uh, at first it had been my Zen Buddhist van, and I really didn't, I really didn't paint it up. For that, I had a picture of Suzuki Roshi, who was the, my Zen teacher in the back, and and that was about it. But when I found Jesus, everything exploded, and and I wanted the whole world to know. So, my wife came out into the backyard one day, and I was up on top of the van with a, pet, a bucket of fire engine red paint and a brush and she said what are you doing up there I said I'm painting Jesus on the bus so in the front and the back in letters about that tall I painted Jesus and then went to the Christian bookstore and bought every bumper sticker they had and plastered it all the way around so they knew I was coming and they knew what I stood for and uh, so you know there was a lot of hitchhikers in those days and it really cut down on the on the hitchhikers because they'd see me and they go like that. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, after the Lord saved us, and we were just nuts for Jesus, and everything was praise the Lord, hallelujah, and um, I was in a state of euphoria for a good while. And as as uh, God moved us at that time from Rome, Georgia, out to Monterey, California, um, uh, we, we waited a while to go because my wife at the time was pregnant with our first child. And two months after he was born, we felt the Spirit had told us as newborn babes in Christ to pick up everything and move to California to join this church. And uh, it wasn't out of the blue. The guy... Uh, the church, uh, the, a fellow at the church had actually led me to Christ over the phone. Long story there, we won't go into that. But, so we, we head out to California in our newfound euphoria for Jesus. And I might add that I got stopped twice for going too slow. <laughs> I've always been a hellion. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, you could get up a good head of steam uh, downhill until you get to western Oklahoma. And then the wind is blowing against you the whole way. And that, and that, that uh, was a perfect windfoil up on top of the, of the, of the bus. Uh, it kind of it, it wanted to die in Albuquerque. It started smoking, and 
you know, knowing nothing, knowing nothing better, I laid hands on it, and uh, the noises stopped, the smoke stopped, and we drove all the way to Monterey, California, where it subsequently died not long after that. Um, but when I got to California, the brother who had led me to Christ. Um, like I say, I was in this euphoria and everything's praise the Lord and it's Jesus is great and Jesus is answering prayers and miracles are happening. And this brother says, well, you know, riding around with that big Jesus sign on your car, you've got to, you've got to really clean up your life to make sure that you are matching this thing name that you're representing. Someone sighs. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, you're right. And you know, that, that is echoed in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy when the, Moses gives the law to the children of Israel. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yeah, you're right. We didn't know we had to do all this stuff, but now that we know we got to do it, we will do it. Well, you know, they did. And I didn't. I didn't know what putting new wine into an old wineskin was, but that's what it is when you think you've got to set about now improving yourself and working for Jesus to kind of pay Him back you know, for what He's done for you, which is on the one hand a wonderful thing, and God is blessed by that, but on the other hand it's a school for us to find out eventually our own helplessness that we cannot do it that he must do it and that he does do it and so that's what began uh, that process for me I went from euphoria to condemnation and stayed there for quite some time because I began to make lists and work on patience I need love um, I need to not yell at my wife. I need to do this. I need to do that. Um, and all the other things that we go about setting ourselves to be, try to become so that we might be pleasing to the Lord. And it's a wonderful, you know, it's, it's a spirit-led thing. Because you understand that the children of Israel, when they were out there in the wilderness, that wasn't the devil leading them around. It was the Holy Spirit. They were in the wilderness and they had a fiery pillar at night and they had a cloudy pillar by day and that was God leading them. Now, the reason they were there for 38 years was because they did not believe they could go into the land and that God would cause them to go into the land and they had to learn that. And uh, it took a, a new generation coming up to do that. But my point is that... Walking in that wilderness, they were sustained and upheld by God every day. It was a spirit life, even though they didn't know it. They still saw themselves as flesh. Because when they went up to the promised land the first time, the majority of the children of Israel were afraid, even though God had already performed all these mighty signs and wonders, uh, given them all these blessings and deliverances, and still when they got to the land to finally possess their possessions that had been promised to them by the Father, they were afraid because they didn't think they could do it. They couldn't measure up. Well, we are like that. You know, it's like we're, we're at the birth and can we actually deliver the child? We, we back off because we don't think we can do it. And they did too. So they wandered around for 38 more years in the wilderness until, until a new generation arose. And um, these are parables for us. The, the story is, is, is showing that that, 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 the, that old consciousness that we think that we are, that we walk out of Egypt with, dies in the wilderness. And the new consciousness arises and is able to go in and take the land because the old consciousness thinks we're ourselves alone and I've got to accomplish. I've got to perform. I've got to be somebody. I've got to be something. The new consciousness realizes it is no longer I, but it is He. You see, you had the ten spies who said they went into the land, they saw the, they saw the, 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 the walled cities, and they saw the giants, and they said, ooh, it's a great land, but there's walled cities and giants, and we can't take that land because we're in our own sight as grasshoppers, focusing on themselves. That's what I did when my friend said, you've got to become better. 
I, ooh, the focus quit being on Jesus, which was unconscious to me at the at that point. I was kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden. I had an unconscious consciousness of God, and there was no sin consciousness of it going around in my mind. He brought it up, and I thought about me, uh, and then down you go. Because then I've got to become something for God. And I've got to know good, and I've got to know evil, and what's right and what's wrong, and how do I figure out what's right. Then you start studying all the biblical principles for how you do things and what are the 20 attributes of the godly man want to get my wife riled up talk about Proverbs 31 Um, (laughs) she went to so many seminars on being a virtuous woman until she finally saw the virtuous woman was Christ in her and um, but um, it still stings a bit Uh, but Anyway, uh, that drove me to finally at, some, at a point after about seven years of that kind of life, it drove me to a point where I realized one day that when I was praying, I was condemned because I hadn't read my Bible enough. And when I was reading my Bible, I was condemned because I hadn't prayed enough. When I was witnessing, I was condemned because I hadn't prayed or read my Bible enough. And on so on and so on. There was no avenue of life in which I did not condemn myself and see myself lacking and coming up short. Because the focus was on me and not being able to go in there and possess my possessions because I didn't have the stuff to do it. And I thought, if I work hard enough, pray long enough, seek earnestly enough, praise loud enough, speak in tongues long enough, I will get there, He will do it, and He will bless me if I just do all these things. And so I finally um, had to leave that group that I was with uh, for various reasons because they kind of... Well, the Lord told me to, but they went off in a different direction. And when I did, uh, Dee Dee mentioned um, earlier, I loved her crack history of me. She does that every time she introduces me. Um, But um, it's a different twist. But I was in a shepherd ministry, and uh, which uh, those of you who are familiar don't know that that's where sort of the ministers kind of take the place of the Holy Spirit for you and tell you everything, how to live your life and what you can do and what you can't do and who you can see and who you can't see and that sort of thing. And um, it's a very uh, confining, controlling environment, but it's safe. Because in that confining, controlling environment, uh, the promise was you you keep with us and we'll keep you safe from the devil because you never know because your heart is wicked and deceitful and you don't know when whether it's you or the devil or the Holy Spirit talking and so you need me as your minister to tell you that I didn't ever understand who told him but. Um, you know, I bought that for a while because it was safety. I didn't know about fear at first. When I first found Jesus, I thought He was sufficient uh, for the whole deal. But then I found out you had to have a whole bunch of other stuff plus Jesus, and I was set about trying to get that. And so I was in this safety net where if you stay here, you'll be in the will of God. We'll keep you safe from the devil, and if, if you know all that. So I left that. And in leaving that, um, I was working in, this is in Monterey, California, I was working in a rental yard at the time. And um, we rented equipment and forklifts and air compressors and that sort of thing. And I was work, walking across the lot uh, to go get a piece of equipment for uh, a customer. And I'd just finally come to peace about leaving this group that I was in, but still in, I was at peace that we were out of that finally, and I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that God was going to do a new thing. And I'd been in this misery for all these years that had started out euphoric and ended in great misery. And as I was walking across the lot, a voice spoke to me. And the voice said, If God told you to go back into that ministry, you wouldn't do it. Well, the worst thing that I knew in my, the worst thing I knew that you could possibly be was disobedient to God. And when I heard that, I thought, that's right, I wouldn't. 
and I, it was the, it was the greatest catch twenty two I've ever experienced because part of me was still settled in the fact that the Lord had said, "Okay, come out." But this other part that I'd been trained with, almost you might call brainwashed with, for that seven years, was you're out of the will of God. And and that was an Arminian environment. And being out of the will of God was tantamount to not being saved anymore. And so so then when when the voice said, if God told you, you wouldn't do it, it, it took it off, had I done the right or the wrong thing, and it put it on to me, and what kind of person was I? And I would be a person who would not obey God if He told me to do that. And it, it put me in such a quandary that, that it, was, it was the stark terror, is all I can tell you. And it wasn't stark terror for a moment, or for an hour, or for a day, but it was stark terror for a long time. I, I imagine if I'd gone to a psychiatrist, they would have put me on drugs, and put me in a hospital at that time. I was, I was, I was so scared. I can't describe it to you. And in the middle of all that, it lasted, as I said, for months. But in the middle of it, I went into. Um, uh, we had a, in, in the rental yard. We had an old storage room where I would go for uh, eat my lunch, and I carried a, the only scripture I could read at that time was the Psalms. Everything else condemned me, but I found I found blessing and peace in the Psalms. So if I could read Psalms, I would find blessing and peace. And the day there came a day after I'd heard that voice and after I was in this quandary that I read this Psalm. And it's Psalm seventy-three. If you got it, you can turn to it. If not, it doesn't matter because I'm gonna read it. Okay, verse 24. I'm reading, reading, reading. Fearful, scared to death. And all of a sudden I come on verse 24, Psalm 73. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My heart and my flesh faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Somehow I skipped 27 and went to 28. But it is a good thing for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Now, I'm sure that all of you know what it is to have a moment. An epiphany moment, an aha moment, a moment when you know that the Spirit has opened something to you that's out of heaven. And because it, it's the wisdom that comes from above and it produces this, this light in us. And we know that, that God has touched us in a special way. And what He touched me with were the first two words of verse 24. Thou shalt. Now, I knew the thou, who the thou was, and that was God. And it suddenly dawned on me for the first time in all my Christian experience, in all that misery, in all that, in all that fear, it suddenly dawned on me where the responsibility lay and who was going to pull off this impossible thing. He is. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. I suddenly saw in a in a dim way because it was yet a while yet before I saw it in cl- in greater clarity that oh I'm not the one responsible for this. I can't figure out who is the voice speaking to me. I can't figure out which way I'm supposed to go. I'm not smart enough to know the will of God. 
Only He is. And, and I'm not smart enough to figure out spiritual things. Because these things can only be communicated to us by the Spirit Himself. Yeah, these, are, these words are here and people analyze them and they outline them and they categorize them and put them in, 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 in lists and, and precept upon precept and line upon line. But it just goes in one ear and out the other unless the Spirit of God enlivens it in us and so that we have the revelation of the Holy Spirit inside our, our own selves. And God has spoken to us and we know that He has. Because it's a living truth that we're talking about, not dead words on white paper or black paper. Well, white, black words on white paper. It's a living reality that these words point us to. And I saw for the first time, and it's been the key to my life ever since, and I've never gone back. Just like this, that, just like coming to know Jesus as Savior was fixed from the from day one, and 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 I've I've gone through every intellectual question and doubt that you possibly could go on that. Every absurd, you know, you think about Jesus and. This, this thing that we believe is absolutely absurd. And it's certainly absurd in our day and time of, of technology and science and, and all, all, all of man's knowledge. It makes no sense that a man rose from the dead and that his shed blood cleanses us from sin and that, that his ro- rising from the dead, which cannot be proven in any way, shape, or form, uh, would affect us so much that we become new persons. It makes no sense. It's a tremendous absurdity and offense to the modern mind. And it's an offense to, to, it was an offense to me as God was dealing with me to, to come to know that. But once I saw it, even though it's been tested and tried and pulled, and I have a pretty good reasoning mind and, and, and understand science and physics and things like that, uh, uh, it, it, I've never been able to pull away from that. Even when my mind said, this is dumb, this is stupid, how could you believe something like that? Maybe that was good back in the first century, but come on, this is the 21st century. Uh, that's ridiculous. But we know this is by the Spirit. We can't prove it. It says in 1 John, he who is born of God has the witness in himself. And it, you can't go back on it. When you try, you find yourself in great turmoil because you're fighting against yourself. Because he's come in and, and become this life in us. Well, I saw that. And I never went back on it by his grace. And then now, this new thing has come where the focus has changed from me running my life to He being my life. Me trying to improve myself to me being an empty place that He fills. To suddenly becoming into an understanding of what Romans 6 says when it, when it says before our members, that is our humanity, our soul and our body, that express our, express our inner selves out into the world and also uh, communicate with the world is were expressions of unrighteousness. That's what it says in Romans 6. When we were our former selves, when we were under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, we, were, we lived for selfish we lived for ourselves and we didn't care about you because we were for me and 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 we were expressions our everything about us was an expression of that well in the new covenant we've become new and it says that our members our humanity has now become the expression of Christ so we begin to see that and we begin to know that but how does that happen by seeing that he's the guy that does it you remember it says in Isaiah 9:6 handles messiah The government is upon His shoulders. The government of what? Well, the government of everything. But I could see it right down. Personally, to me, the government of my life is now on His shoulders. Not some separate guy I think is me. Because there is no separate guy of, called Fred Pruitt. There's only Fred Pruitt who is united to Christ. I've become me by being united to Him. Your life is not your own. You're bought with a price. And when you're bought with the price, you're His. You're His slave, it says in Romans 6. He comes to live in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's what it says Philippians. We all know that scripture, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We all go, ooh, 
I'm going to try to do that. And it's a lot of fear and a lot of trembling. And it takes great tribulation, it says in Acts, to enter into the kingdom of God. And it does because we walk through this wilderness to get there. But when we get there, it, the second part of that Philippian Scripture is, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So when we're working out our own salvation through fear and trembling, guess what? All of that is God in us working it out to will and to do of His good pleasure. So those children of Israel who we, 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 we think were disobedient, and they were, but there was a purpose to it, and they're, and they're cast, seemingly cast into this wilderness and can't get out of it, but they're led by God the whole way, and they're not led by straight, normal, uh, logical path across that wilderness. No, if you look at the map, it's like this. They go this way, that way, this way. Sometimes they stay a week. Sometimes they stay an hour. Sometimes they stay a month or a year someplace. But they get up and go when the cloudy pillar goes. When the pillar goes, they blow the horn. Everybody packs their tents up moves out. And then the next, they may go for a week, travel, and then the, the, the cloud stops. They all pitch their tents. They, they gather their manna. Which God provides every day. Their shoes don't wear out, and this is God's provision, even in the wilderness. It's God leading them, God upholding them. But there's a day that they arrive. There's a day that they arrive and come to possess their possessions. That, that, that is, they get to walk into the land that God has promised. That, and to fulfill the promise of Abraham, everywhere you place your foot, that's yours. And so there's a day that that comes for us. And that's when we enter into our rest. And we enter, when we enter into our rest, which is the rest of God, with, that is, we, we realize it is no longer us who live, but He who lives in us. And that this life is now flowing out of His life inside me, and not by my instigation, but by His. You see, the life comes out of me, but it comes out of Him in me. He who believeth on me out of his belly, that is, his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. And somehow we get it all turned around. We think He's up there and He's kind of, there shall be showers of blessing. We think He's got some showers to pour on us. Well, He does, but they're up inside us and they're never failing. There's a, there's a well of water inside us that from which we drink and we never thirst again. Have you wondered why you keep thirsting? Well, realize that He is the water and He never fails. He's always there. The spigot's always open. The water bill's always paid. And the reality of He living in us, is that life changes from us trying to get God to do stuff to Him getting us to do stuff. Because it's He in us being motivated and moved by Him rather than we think we're somebody out here and oh God I've got this need I've got that need and you need to do this and you need to do that and oh bless me and fill me and make me holy and better and cleaner and purer and stuff like that but you see all that's Him I have no righteousness of my own I have no wisdom of my own I have no power of my own I have no strength of my own He doesn't give any of that stuff away and give it to me and make me something special and separate from Him because it's always a union. We know that from the, from the earth. We know that from the natural world. Look at the moon. The moon has no light of its own. It reflects the sun's light. When you see the moon, you see a union. You see a, a union of the sun's light shining on the dark body of the moon. And guess what? We just call it the moon. We don't say, oh, look at the sun shining on the moon. When I say, when you turn on the light, well, that's electricity flowing through a light bulb. You don't t- go, oh, turn on the electricity flowing through the light bulb so that light may go. You just say, turn on the light. Because that's the point. We are the light of the world. We're the point of contact with divinity into the world. So that His light is shed into the world and it lives as us and is us. So anyway, that's just a little bit. Um, the whole Bible screams it when you see it. It just screams it. When, you, when the perspective changes from, from about me and what I need to be to who Christ is in us, the whole Scriptures say it. And you begin to see it from Genesis to Revelation. And that it's not about an outer 
deal. It's not about some outer building. It's not about some outer obedience to precepts. But it's about a law of, of the, the life of Christ Jesus living in us, nullifying continuously the law of sin and death that was at work in us before. That's what Romans 8.2 says. For the law of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death, of condemnation, of wrath. We're no longer subject to that because now, like an airplane can fly by the law of aerodynamics and thrust and overcomes the law of gravity so that the law of gravity, as long as the engines are working, is of no effect to the airplane. Um, uh, not completely, but you know what I'm saying. Because because a, a body that weighs more, you know, a, a 50-ton airplane loaded with fuel and people, it's a miracle when it takes off. Because how could that be? But these engines, somehow they've discovered these laws, that law of gravity which holds that plane down to the ground is overcome by the thrust in this law of aerodynamics. And it's the same thing with the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That He's entered into us to overcome this law that has held us in bondage all our lives. We're in bondage to just our, 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 ourselves as if we're alone trying to improve and get better and do things and try to work the works of God when we can't. Because there's only one way to work the works of God, Jesus said. They said, Master, how can we work the works of God? And He said, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. And He sent it. He sent Him, God the Father has sent Him into our inner beings to be everything that we need to be in every single moment. So that I, re- I, I realize now that I walk about in a sufficiency that's not mine, but always is. His sufficiency is always there. It always functions. And it functions in me as me. And the same thing is happening in and as all of us. <sighs> okay. Well, that's that. Um, so, if any of you I'd like to open for questions or for, um, not real hard questions please, uh, and uh, keep the tomatoes down. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but if anybody would like to ha- comment or uh, have something to share or have uh, questions, uh, please feel free.